0: Always fun to start the show off with a letter, uh, especially when that letter has to do with my new book, Rowe and the Midnight Oregon Fight. Reading a letter written to my podcast about my new book on my podcast. Well, that's so much narcissism, it probably almost veers into self-loathing. <laughs> Luna from New York writes, Dear Alex, love the new book. Rowe is one of the most complex and weird characters I've ever come across. I'm a librarian at a high school here in New York City, and I'm telling everyone to read this book. Oh, thank you, Luna. My question is, who would you like to do the audiobook? I'm guessing it's someone sophisticated, like Sir Anthony Hopkins or Sir Ian McKellen. But you should get someone unexpected, like Dua Lipa. Anyway, just a thought, keep up the great work. Well, Luna, I'd love Hopkins or McKellen, of course. And frankly, I'd also love Dua Lipa. Uh, She's lovely. She has a great speaking voice, but I I don't know. I feel like she bores easily. Like, when I watch Dua Lipa play live, which I do constantly, uh, about four songs in, she seems like she's kind of over it. I feel like she'd be doing the narration for my book, and then she'd just get super bored and start taking phone calls, which actually would be kind of funny. Dua Lipa, if you're listening, and we all know she is— you can take a phone call while narrating my audiobook. I'd be fine with that. But my real goal, and Luna, I'm glad you brought this up. My real goal is to get Dua Lipa on the podcast and also get the language app, Duolingo, to be a sponsor. And then the dream is to get Dua Lipa to read the copy. So she'd be like, hi, this is Dua Lipa for Duolingo. Don't you think now's a great time to learn Hebrew? <laughs> I have very few goals in life. Uh, I've realized, uh, but that one, that one's high on the list. I'd love to hear that sentence. (laughs) I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out.
1: I just want to feel it. I just need to.
0: Music of Aliens, a band which features my guest today on the program, Tim May. Let me tell you a little bit about Aliens and Tim May. Okay, so I met Tim May about a year ago when he contacted me about a documentary he was making about one of my all-time favorite bands, Delamitri. Tim had read my essay about the band's album, Waking Hours, and he thought it'd be fun to chat with me about my relationship with that record uh, and with the band And so the plan was for him and his crew to fly from the U.K. to San Francisco, interview me for the film, hang out a bit, and then fly back. I was totally excited. Um, I cleaned the house. (laughs) I got a haircut. And then, well, you know how this story ends. The virus hit, and it hit big. And that pretty much sent that plan careening off the road straight into the COVID ditch. Okay, so that's the bad news. By the way, the documentary might still happen, which Tim talks about a bit in this chat. But let's get to the good news. Now, I didn't know this at the time, but Tim has a band with Delamitri guitarist Ian Harvey. The band is Aliens, and the music they make is just phenomenal. A dreamy groove of thoughtful indie pop that swirls mightily away with otherworldly melodicism, infectious choruses, and atmospheric instrumentation that's intricate, thoughtful, And immensely satisfying, Aliens are a great band. Tim's the lead singer, but his story didn't start there. I'm going to let him tell you all about his life, because there's a lot to cover. An early band signed to a major label and feeling like they were on the brink of stardom. Academia, making movies, having a talented daughter whose own career in music is now shifting into full swing. There's a lot to cover, but guess what? We cover it all. This is a great chat with a fascinating and lovely guy. So here it is, me and Tim May of Aliens, right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast.
2: I started playing in bands at the age of 14, I think. Wow, um, and we had we had a band at, we had a bandit uh, of local friends. Uh, we called ourselves Virgin on the Crud, and that's Virgin spelt V-E-R, as in you know pretty cruddy. Um, and we were predicted to be terrible. I think our drummer played with a set of felt pens, um, and okay. pencils didn't have sticks. And we you know we played the church hall, and we got all my sister's friends to come. But um, we we're very good at marketing, so we had uh, we had these pens which looked like, I don't know if you had these in the States, they're called Toblerone bars, but they're like triangular chocolate bars. And the pens were in that shape. And in the, this would have been the mid seventies, they were all the rage. And we had them printed up with the band's name on and a load of t-shirts made. And I, I think that sort of got me thinking quite early on about there was there was more to this music than playing music, which was good because at the time I couldn't play anything at all to save my life. Um, I went off to secondary school uh, and fell in with a musician called Neil McCall, who's still a very dear friend of mine. And his um, mother is Peggy Seeger, his father is Ewan McCall, his half-sister was the much-lamented Kirsty. And Neil and his younger brother Callum and I played music together all the way through, really from 15. And Neil and I were in various bands. And I learned to play the saxophone, not very well, but enough to play a bit. And when I went off to university, it was 1980 and it was the time of punk moving into new wave, Uh, bands playing ska, you know, the specials, the beat, selector. Um, I'd always been a huge Bowie fan. That was still kicking around for me. And I formed a band at university with, with some guys called The Models, a very sort of early 80s name. And we played sort of high-speed new wave, covered things like Queen Bitch by Bowie. And we we became the sort of the university band, mm. you know, playing pretty much two or three times a week. And I invited Neil up to join us. Uh, and that lineup eventually became the Roaring Boys. And through university, we were being courted by management and publishers and stuff. You know, it's just weird. And in my final year, I spent most of the year travelling down to London and sleeping on Neil's floor, and we rehearsed in a really damp and not very nice studio in in Greenwich, which is on the for, for, for your American listeners, is on the south bank of the Thames. And um is where the, there's a great big ship there called the Cutty Sark and this studio, Woodworth, was, was interesting because Dire Straits, um, I can't remember who else but bands that became very big in the South London scene rehearsed there and we were there all the time um, and through that year, through 1983 and then into 84 um, we really got quite serious about it and I think I think we were an ambitious bunch, and this was also the time. Remember of you know, Duran Duran, Spandau Ballet, bands that we'd been through that kind of move from music, as Alan McGee was saying. I think from people had the idea that music could be a career, and there was this weird business like thing going on with bands like Heaven Seventeen wearing suits and calling yeah. their album pavement and it was all you know it was all ironic and they were commenting on the times but i think there was a sort of corporate edge creeping in um so long story short we had we had our obligatory year uh, on what the british then called the dole social security in 1984 rehearsed ourselves silly and um started gigging in london and through that summer we just got lucky. We got a review in Melody Maker, which was huge at the time. And A&R guys started coming to the gigs, a couple. And we had this kind of um, wheeze old fashioned English word. And we hawked our demo cassettes round all the labels in London and we would give them to the girls on reception. And then, and then, say why don't you meet us at lunchtime in this cafe or in the park in Soho Square and bring your friends and then we give them cassettes and then we give them free tickets to the gigs Mm. and they would bring their bosses Um, and it worked like a dream and that summer we did a a residency at a club called the Ad Lib in Kensington uh, which was really a pub and we did every Saturday night I think for six weeks and by the end of that time it was queuing around the block and I think the last gig we did, Sting was in the audience. I, don't, I lost cr- track. It was a real. It became a real bubble. Became a thing. And a manager called Billy Gaff, who managed Rod Stewart, John Mellencamp. Um, I think I think he's died. But uh, he signed us, and he then took over and negotiated a deal. Um, and we ended up, I think, with Electra, CBS, Epic, and EMI on the table. Wow I went with CBS Epic and um, we signed you know a, a huge deal a hundred grand i think um, which gave us enough to wage ourselves you know in a, in a small way and, and pay our rent and the rest of it, of course, was which i don 't think for guys that were meant to be so smart we'd fully <laughs> understood was effectively a debt um, <laughs> and um, you know for a brief period we were we kind of done what we said we wanted to do. You know, we'd stepped through the stepped through the looking glass. We were, we were really in Wonderland. And um, we recorded an album with Glenn Johns, which was, you know, a lifetime's dream. I mean, yeah. he's made some of the greatest records ever, engineered, produced, everyone from the Stones, as you know, to the Who, to the Clash, Joan Armor Trading. I mean, the list goes on. And um, and then we we released our first single and promptly got absolutely trashed in the uk because the journalists hated the fact that we'd already been in smash hits we'd already been on the cover of this we'd already been in the evening standard we were already too big for our boots and we were easy to have a go at because three of us were cambridge or four of us were cambridge graduates and the father the the father of the singer was a was a was a famous actor and you know you could you, you get the picture yeah and and i think looking back um on on that on that now i think actually what happened to us was that we were vain uh we <laughs> were greedy um we believed our own hype and we took our eye off the music and it's that classic story of you know the thing that you get together to do because you just love it. So you spend seven nights a week in a wet cellar in Cambridge or a damp studio in Greenwich, just playing because you love playing, and then doing these pubs. All of that started to dissipate in a sort of welter of jockeying for position and worrying about publishing advances and and all the rest of it. I mean, it you know it wasn't very edifying. Um, we still had a lot of fun along the way, but. Eventually, uh, I think the thing that, that would have saved us was Billy's plan, which was a very good one, was never to launch us in the UK. He wanted to launch us in the States. And I'm not sure now, I can't remember. I've got diaries from this time, but I haven't, I haven't dug them out. But I think there was a disagreement between CBS and him about that strategy. And by the time we'd launched here, of course, it wouldn't have been too late to almost shut up shop in England and go to America. And, and that's what they decided, they decided and we decided to say they, it's interesting, isn't it? That's how, can, that's how much we were sort of not in the driving seat. room. Um, so we went into a very, very long period of rehearsal um, to prepare for our first college tour in the States. And it wasn't kind of completely uh, an insane plan because the album It'd been released in America and sold 75,000 copies. We'd not actually been there. We'd, we, Paul and I, the singer, went out and did a week in New York doing interviews and going around the clubs and being seen in New York and all of that sort of weird crap. Um, but we never played there. We were still selling records. And the American radio loved it, which was weird. So, um, And we had a top 10 in Italy and we had a number one in Paraguay. Wow. (laughs) Not a lot of people can say that. Not a lot of people can say that, but you know, I never never saw the royalties, but I'm assuming there's quite a lot of people in Paraguay. But um, (laughs) as is the way of the world with these things, I think the the band had sort of split into two camps. Two of the guys were, were sort of, they were done. They wanted to go and join a band called The Bible, which they eventually did. And I was increasingly frustrated because I I was a songwriter when I joined the band. In fact, I wrote at least half the material. By the time we got to this point, I wasn't getting anything through. And that was pretty soul destroying for me. And I was sort of getting bored if I'm really honest. Really? Yeah, I was getting bored of being in a rehearsal and I had this weird feeling that we were being frozen out. And the others didn't seem to worry about that at that time. They just said, "No, no, no, no. It's going to be fine. We just keep going, and we'll go to America, and it'll all be great." Um, so I wasn't enjoying the process. Mm. And um, anyway, one day we were we left the studio to go to some drinks that CBS were having, and this must have been two years after we'd signed, and almost two years to the day we'd walked into this same nightclub, and you know. George Michael was there and Tony Hadley was there from Spandau and some much were there and we were like the new kids on the block and we were welcomed with open arms and everyone thought we were really fucking cool. Two years later, I really, I remember this so clearly, the people from CBS that had been involved in signing us turned, turned their backs as we approached the bar. And you just, and I said, and I said that night, I remember saying, I said, we guys, we are fucked. You know, they, they're done. I mean, well, for whatever reason, someone's decided we're dead meat. And sure enough, within a week we had a phone call at the studio saying that they pulled the tour support for America and we were no longer going. And at that point, I decided to go. Um, and I didn't have anything to go to. And I was twenty five, going on twenty-six, and I'd done this since I was a student from the age of twenty. So in the teeth of a lot of parental opposition, as you can imagine. Um, yeah. So it was a bit of a humbling moment, but I knew, I just felt I had to stop. And um, it took about a year because I had to negotiate my way out and we still had commitments in Europe for TV shows because we had a hit single out there. So I went out and did that like a sort of swan song that was kind of weird, but very good fun. Um, Playing to huge, huge sort of Roman amphitheaters full of 30,000 people, miming of course, which was just a laugh. But just being out there with bonkers people like Zig Sputnik and Communards and Frankie Goes to Hollywood and just partying. It was all great, all that stuff. Um, yeah, and by 85, 86, I was gone. Um, and the three of them, three of them carried on for a while. And and this is this is funny. CBS's accountants play, paid them uh, a, another tranche of the advance by mistake. So and they couldn't take it back. So, not only had I left with no money um, and legal fees, um, I had to kind of swallow the fact that they'd all got a check for 50 grand.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Yeah. When you were on stage, it reminds me of when you know you're gonna break up with somebody and you're gonna, you know, I'm gonna leave in a couple of weeks and then you guys have like a good night together, like a good date or things are going well and you go, well, maybe I'll stay. When you were playing yeah. to 30,000 people, were there, was there a part of you going, maybe I'll stick around, or were you pretty resolute about...
2: No, it it was, I mean, you know, um, despite all our uh, differences, and really the differences were only with one or two people at that point, um, these were people I was incredibly close to, number one, and B, we were having a lot of fun, ironically, now that we we all knew that I was going, and Neil the guitarist was going, and Dave the drummer was going, and they were going to the Bible, everybody knew. Um... So it was kind of strange, and I didn't, I didn't uh, really have a clear idea of where I wanted to go. I just knew that deep inside, I felt like I wasn't being creative. That was the thing. And I'd sublimated my musical creativity, such as it was at the time, into... sort of other aspects of being in the band so i was really big on the visuals the videos you know um that kind of stuff and um i actually just took a leap in the dark and ended up going to see the guys that made a couple of our videos and saying look could i just learn to write scripts or something with you and hang out because i really enjoyed the process and that that became the start of a career eventually in television actually in documentary But it's interesting how, how those two connected because had you not done this,
0: you might not even have known that you wanted to go that direction. I mean No, and
2: I, I remember going into the edit suite to see a cut of our first video, and I'd never been in an edit before, and I, you know, it was all it's all a mystery. And um and saying to the director, which is sort of, you know, because we didn't have what I think my daughter has in her career. She has a very strong sense of watch who she is and what she wants and she can find a way to to ask for that or request that or make that happen or insist upon it without being a brat um once we'd signed our deal there was a sense of going inside a big machine where you kind of felt you you sort of forgot that it was your money that was paying or the record company's money that was paying for the video guys to be in the suite so if you had a view on what was going to happen but it was weird i think we were Overly polite and respectful at the time, and not quite sure of, of, of how we should handle those things. Though, of course, those people might disagree, and most people probably thought they were a bunch of arrogant wankers. But I do remember sitting in that video suite and, and saying, Oh, you know, that moment where Paul does that, what would happen if you slowed it down? And suddenly, and they went, Oh, that's a really good idea. I'm quite like this. This <laughs> is <Yeah. laughs> um and that definitely was a little moment there um and i'd always loved documentaries one thing i forgot to mention was that i think when i was 17 arena which is the arts series that i ended up working on at the bbc alan yentop who was then running it made a film with david bowie called cracked actor which is still if anyone hasn't seen it i think it's on youtube the most amazing documentary. It's about the end of Ziggy and the transition into um, Young Americans, in effect. And it's on the road with him in Los Angeles, in Hollywood. And uh, Bowie is in his Coke phase. Um, And it's a wonderful film. And I remember watching that. And Bowie was from Bromley, which is pretty much where I grew up, and I'd always been obsessed with him. Um, And that documentary was the thing that made me thought, God, yeah, I, that that's that would be great, and um, and it's so ironic to me that all those years later I ended up working on Arena. That yeah. was the dream come true, I have to say. Um, but the documentary thing was probably sitting there actually kind of unrealized for some time, and then and then that became my my life, you know, for nearly ten years.
0: The the origin story
2: of the band,
0: though it doesn't end great. I mean, the Mm. fact that the through line explains where you are now in, in your life is pretty Yeah, you know,
2: yeah, and I don't regret, uh, any of it. I mean, it was a huge adventure. It was a huge privilege. We got to do the thing that thousands and thousands of kids dream of. Yeah. And, and to see it for what it is as well and some of it was as mad and debauched and crazy and bonkers as everybody says uh, and some of it was kind of weird and um you know recording an album with glenn johns was the most incredibly profound and uh kind of instructive experience but there were also long days of tremendous boredom and um And lots of infighting, which made the atmosphere very unpleasant. You know, it was tough. You know, Glyn and Paul fought like cat and dog. And, you know, so I remember feeling utterly miserable in the middle of that three or four months. And I'm thinking, well, is this what I thought it would be? You know, so all of that stuff. Um, And I, uh, yeah, and, and it was also a fantastic education in the ways of the world in terms of business and contracts. By the time I got to the BBC at the age of 27, I knew... I knew more about contracts than contracts, you know. And in fact, I went out and negotiated deals with record companies to record their artists where they paid us to put them on the telly, which I thought was pretty cool. <laughs> no, <that's> pretty good. <laughs> and then those two guys went to
0: the Bible for the Walking the Ghost Back Home record, right? They were, has that been 86?
2: Yeah, Dave, Dave Larkin plays drums on that. I don't think Neil actually played on that album, but they but he he was playing they were, they were in Cambridge at the same time as us, the Bible. And Neil certainly was then really instrumental in everything that happened, which became the Eureka album recorded with Steve Earl and a whole load of other stuff. And, and they went, I mean, the Bible went through their own version of, you know, I was going to call it pop hell, but you know, yeah. With chrysalis. Yeah. A wonderful, wonderful band who was sent on a seemingly never ending quest for the perfect single. Which was sort of crazy, because you know they really weren't that banned, you know they could boo, boo can and did write the most amazingly beautiful catchy songs. yeah, but uh, they were never going to be pop stars, um, but Chrysalis kind of just kept them demoing forever, you know, demo hell. And we went through that process. I mean, we demoed Christ knows what how much we demoed after the first album, I mean, song after song after song, and it's. It was utterly pointless, I have to say.
0: Well, they, I remember hearing in 87, Graceland hit the radio here in San Francisco. And it was like, I pulled over the car to go like, what the hell is happening? This is the most amazing I've ever heard. Know. Um, you know, uh, you know, and when I die, will you build the Taj Mahal? Like, what?
2: Um, so just a beautiful, do you know Boo? I do. And so, I mean, Boo and I have been, you know, knocking into each other for 25, 30 years, and Neil and Boo, obviously tremendously close, and um, so I'm not in contact with him regularly. But if you know, I, I see him a lot. And uh, I did play with the Bible twice, and that was a wonderful, wonderful experience. They supported Deacon Blue in London, and I did that gig and played sax. But I wasn't up to their standard. I mean, in terms, the musicianship in that band was extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. You had Tony Shepherd on, who is actually a drummer playing keyboards, Dave Larkham on drums, Neil McColl on guitars, Boo singing, and Leroy Lender finally on bass. Yeah. is the greatest unsung hero of the bass guitar in the UK and is now in Aliens. I'm, very, I'm delighted to say. And um, also playing with my daughter Indira. So we all go back, you know. Yeah. Um,
0: but the, the Bible. were. Yeah. They were incredible. I mean, they were an incredible band. And um, it's too bad we didn't get 10 records out of them because I, I think that they would have had a really kind of a beautiful, quiet career. I was listening to them and the Railway Children at the same time. Yep. Um, that was where my ear was. Um, but in many ways, did you feel that, that you were sort of playing with house money a little bit because you're, you were university educated, it wasn't like you were walking out without a degree, you had kind of protected yourself? Or did you not feel that way?
2: I didn't feel that way um, because although I come from a you know, suburban middle-class background, my dad was a GP, general practitioner, a doctor, my mum was a teacher. Um, so yes, I had them to fall back on and they've always been phenomenally supportive not just of me. But also with my siblings and even when I sort of kicked my dad in the teeth by saying you know what you know you know they all say I was gonna do you know further studies at Cambridge said I'm not I'm going on the dole and joining this band that, that was a difficult year with him um but they never they never not supported me so I knew I could always go back somewhere but in terms of a career and how I would move forward and no, I didn't have a clue I mean I I did I did Latin and Greek at university not because I knew what I was doing just because I happened to have a couple of teachers who were really great and encouraged me. And I discovered I was really good at this very obscure thing. Yeah. Um, And I did it because I loved it, you know, and it was the same with music. Um, there was music in Latin and Greek going on at the same time, you know, Yeah, you know, would be rock star on a Friday and Saturday night, you know, guy reading Greek lyric poetry on a Wednesday afternoon. Um, they may see it sound like strange bedfellows. Um, and then I, the same with film. I I always envied my, um, my university compadres, some of whom I'm still in touch with, uh, who went into, you know, law or management consultancy or whatever it was, you know, a career and kind of a very clear sense of that. But I wasn't from a public school. I was from a, you know, I was from a, what they called a direct grant grammar school you had to you know you could win a place there basically and so i didn't have that public school thing going on with which i think gives you a kind of a public school as your listeners know in the uk means effectively private education it's rather confusing um so but i wasn't state school educated beyond the age of sort of 12 13 and but i didn't have that sort of maybe inbuilt sense of entitlement or expectation that i would step into a place of the i mean i did end up at the bbc that's absolutely true yeah took me two years to get in and i got in purely by submitting ideas for films documentaries and actually the guy that hired me on arena didn't know he didn't even look at my cv he only found out that I'd been to Cambridge University when we were getting drunk in the bar after I'd rejoined. <laughs> so, you know, so it's kind of it's kind of a, kind of a weird one. Um, I'm not discounting all the all the um, advantages uh, that that kind of education gives you at all, but I'm but it certainly didn't didn't kind of influence the choices I made. Interesting. I never thought. Oh well. I can do anything because I can always go and get a really great job because I've got a Cambridge degree. My brain doesn't really work like that. I don't know. Maybe that. Maybe it would have been true. I don't know.
0: But you're in American standards. We you finish a four-year
2: university degree, so you did three years. years. Yeah. Okay. Three years. Three years. Yeah.
0: And then you're and your major. You graduate with a Latin major.
2: Yeah, I graduated with a a a first-class degree in classics, which very sort of traditional thing to do in some ways you know um and i but it's 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 a weird it's a weird degree to have in someone because because it isn't it you know it isn't clear what people do with it it sets you up brilliantly if you like detail i think um you find a lot of lawyers for classicists because you're paying close attention to things but the thing that i loved about it was was the way it helped me to think Mm. and the realization that western civilization wasn't on its first go (laughs) round. right Right. um it may be on its last go round as we're speaking now but who knows yes Um, didn't i I knew nothing about the the east until much later when i met my wife and she introduced me to the you know to the to an indian way of thinking and to buddhism and and other things which then changed my worldview but yeah uh, it was a a weird passion what can i tell you you know like we she's best
0: I mean I mean I am so interested in what makes us go the directions that we go like I was at my father's house cleaning out my old university papers and I had to take Latin my freshman year. I was an English major and I found on the back of all my Latin papers the playlists that I was gonna songs I was gonna play for my radio show. I, my head was not in Latin it was like the jazz butcher the, you know I think I was not thinking about every Latin paper, I was so bored, just had my playlist on the back of them. So my brain was headed in a totally different, different way. And then that gave way to like writing poetry and Mm -hmm. I definitely, my, my, my head was not in that game. So it's really interesting for me to hear that you, like for you, you liked the way that it exercised your brain. Um, And what I'm saying is I'm a lot dumber than you, Tim. My 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 brain wouldn't do it, it wouldn't do those, it would not do that, but it did other things. And I think it's really interesting to find out what, to quote the jazz butcher, what makes your heart sing, what makes your brain yeah, really, yeah. work yeah. in the right way. And I love your origin story, how you, the path that led you to where you went, um, we're, when we're talking it out like this it makes perfect sense
2: at the mm. time it probably didn't feel it <laughs> right man I mean, you know i mean so so a couple of things and I, I not in in no particular order but when i'd left the band and joined the bbc i sort of um i sort of buried music playing it anyway and writing it i used to jam with neil when we you know had a few bottles of wine and we played play our way through the beatles songbook and stuff and i used to play maybe at a party or a wedding or something but i i didn't write any songs and i didn't talk about the experience of being in the roaring boys at all and and the internet hadn't happened so it was a sort of dirty little secret that i could keep until i went on a course to learn to be i hoped a drama director at the bbc and met my wife karen my my then you know the woman who would become my wife and we were sitting in the canteen in Elstree Studios, which is sort of north of London. It's where uh, EastEnders is filmed. Okay. If, uh, and uh, we were on this three-week course. We've been thrown together. And um, she leaned across the table on the first day, and there was, you know, twenty of us, I think. And she said, "I'm sure I know you." And I said, "No, no." no. And said, yeah, and she said, "No, no, no." You do. You were in a band. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah. OK. And it turns out that um, or it turned out that she was at Cambridge University at the same time as me. She'd come from a comprehensive school, which is a state school from, a, you know, on a wing and a prayer um, from a little village outside Oxford and won a place at Cambridge at King's College, which was amazing. And um, she had been around the pubs that we were playing in in Cambridge as a, as a student band, but we'd never met. Wow. Uh, and we were paired up by the cheetah and you know and i realized having seen her film a graduation film from that course that i was never going to be a drama director but i could marry one so um so that But coming back to that thing about brains um i don't mind saying this uh on on air uh, i've recently been diagnosed with adhd and um that was a big a big thing And I think now that helps explain to myself, uh, why this sort of ability, but also desire to hyper-focus on certain things is so acute. So Latin and Greek definitely satisfied that sort of, you get lost in it, you know, you get lost in five lines of a poem that are a fragment. But what, But it wasn't necessarily the puzzle of the language that attracted me. It was the, it was the incredible sensitivity of those people that were long dead trying to express emotions that were universal. And it was the first time that had hit me. And there was, I found something quite moving about the fact that it was so fragmentary. Um, It was like a glimpse and, and then you could start to trace the impact of those writers men and women through the ages and start to pick them up like echoes and that and i was taught by a classicist who was heavily influenced by structuralism you know the idea that poets talk to each other across the years across the generations and writers talk as musicians do of course right um echo borrow steal you know whatever you want to call it but now that we're all getting long in the tooth you know my my daughter will play me something and i always go God, that's really weird. It really sounds a lot like, which drives her mad, of course.
1: <laughs> I don't care about them. Right. Um,
2: but that process was, I've always enjoyed. And I think I was thinking about the band and being in the band and what it was. And it was the camaraderie, but it was the process. Now, now I realise that. We were so focused on the end goal, the album, the million dollar check, you know, the drugs, the limo, whatever.
0: Understandably,
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: At twenty, at twenty something, why Come not? But, yeah, but then, um, but then you then you realise looking back, actually, it was the process of doing it that was the fun. When you were lost, you know, time stops. Right. You're a song. You're recording a song. You're playing a song. That's the thing, you know, and that's what brought me back to music in the end, in any kind of inverted commas serious way, was suddenly I suddenly i had something to write about this was back in whenever indira was five 2001 and uh and suddenly i fell back in love with the process it took a really long time i love hearing that because you what you were saying about latin
0: in america you know maybe 15 years ago if someone had adhd that would be the explanation of why they couldn't do their latin but for you it's an explanation of why you could and it's really interesting yeah. to hear about you in the process of the band. You got bored. So something, it, something was
2: not making your brain work the way it wanted to work. And you were, uh, you were done. But you're right. And, and, I've, and that's And I now can see that being in lockdown has been a time to think back through these things. I can now see the junction points in my life where people thought they were brave or foolhardy decisions, you know, leaving the band, uh, you know, not continuing with an education, doing an MA, masters or a PhD or being a professor or, you know, leaving the band, joining the BBC, jumping shit from the BBC, you know, I don't know, whatever, whatever it's been, you know, um, deciding to become a screenwriter, What you know, stuff. Um, there's an impulsivity about that, but there's also a kind of restlessness, you know. Uh, I, think, I think, coming back to the ADHD thing, there's another irony for me, which was that in the mid 2000s, I was making um, what people now call branded content, but, you know, rather, and Americans used to call them industrials, uh, and uh, we would call them corporate films. It was a very dirty word for a very long time. Um, <laughs> But um, I worked with a, uh, a pharmaceutical company who are now defunct, but actually uh, I really admired at that time. They were doing some extraordinary things and they were producing the new generation of ADHD medication, which I think is still out there in the States, L-Vance, Vyvanse, xr whatever. And um, I went and made films with children and adults, mostly in America, but a couple in Europe, who had adhd and i remember coming back to britain and you know you're having a drink with friends or dinner or something and say and you, they say what have you been up to and they oh i tell them and they go well it's not a real condition is it and i said mm, having seen it firsthand i think it is <laughs> uh but yeah. but I tell you, the 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 prejudice in the uk was unbelievably high and And I'm not saying the drug companies did themselves any favors with Ritalin, you know, in the States, they certainly didn't. But there was a myth that a whole generation of children were being medicated. That, from what I saw, that was not the case. And the kids that I did see needed something. I mean, they were off the chart. Now, um, we understand with advances in brain imaging technology, like never before, we can see, which parts of the brain are firing up, which neurons are not firing up. We can, we can, we can map it. We know that ADHD is a real condition and actually it's a very complex condition and it gets overlaid with other conditions like OCD, anxiety, whatever. And it's not just about being impulsive, but it's not just the boy, you know, it's just not the young boy climbing the walls, which is the classic stereotype of it. Right. In In girls, for example, it's, you know, often hidden and it's a dream state. They're in a creative dream state. They can't connect. They tune out. And, uh, as I say to all my old friends, um, you know, I thought, you, you know, you, you, know, you thought I was a bit of a in English word wanker for all those years. I said, well, it's true, but it wasn't me. It's, it's my ADHD. <laughs> <laughs> you know,
0: and, um, what means you get diagnosed at this stage in life?
2: Rather than it was was an accident. Uh, It was an accident. I hope she won't mind my saying this. I don't think she will. Uh,
0: I can take it out if if it's uncomfortable. She wants me. No,
2: I think it'll be okay. Um, Our our daughter Indira um, had issues with OCD for a long time when she was much younger, and uh, we were gradually thinking now that she's in her early twenties that maybe something else is going on and. My wife's a psychotherapist and she started reading about ADHD and then through a weird series of coincidences, um, I saw an article in one of her therapy magazines and there was a woman in there, a therapist, a specialist in ADHD, turned out to be half an hour down the road from us and has ADHD herself. And I said to Indira, you know what, do you want to go and see this woman? It might be interesting just to check it out. And she said yes, so we went down there as a family, and I was doing my thing, which I always do apparently, but I'm not aware of, I was getting up from the session and going out and making phone calls, and we came back in, and there were 10 minutes to go, and uh, the therapist said, um, well, of course, you do know that it's genetic, it's, her, it's hereditary. <laughs> and she smiled, and she looked at my wife, who's you know, very zen-like, She said, well, I'm guessing it doesn't come from you. And then she looked at she looked at me and Indira, who were sitting side by side on the sofa like this, both in the same position. <laughs> I, like that. And um, she said, "So," and everybody laughed. And she said, "Look, you have got ten minutes. You know, India's kind of done. Would you like to do the same questionnaire that she did? Just you know, it's not a diagnosis. But have a go." And I did it, and of course, you know, was off the chart So um, that was a weird night. Yeah.
0: It's interesting that you can learn these things about yourself. I mean, I like the idea that we're never done learning. We're
2: never done, no. you know. I turned six, 60 this year, man. So, you know, yeah. it's, I, I like, I, it. it's actually been a revelation to me. It's been a, a sort of recognition, but also really helpful.
0: look at your life it makes perfect novelistic sense even the way you met your wife like if you hadn't been in the band that wouldn't have been the entry point into that conversation (laughs) I mean look you're a charming guy but like that that certainly helped so you can imagine like if that hadn't happened so to me it's like I read one of the things I always loved doing in in college was I would love reading about the life of a poet before I read their work, it would have a brief, you know, born and whatever. They did. They studied in this place and they went to this place and they did. I always loved reading those things because they mm-hmm. were so tidy. Um, your life to me feels like that. It feels like everything makes sense as to where you are now and what's happening. Um, do you look at it now and and sort of see it all snapping together? Almost like it's been, I mean, not I'm not saying that it's divinely planned, but it sure looks that way.
2: I don't know. I would say there's a couple of things. Um, I mean, meet, meeting Karen was absolutely the thing that changed everything because we then went on to become partners in the full sense. You know, uh, we made. you know, we, you know, we, we live together, we're married, we have a wonderful child and we uh, grown up daughter, and, and we make films together and we're back working together for the first time in seven or eight years, you know, as a writing team yeah Um, and so on and and that that's been fantastic i i um spent some time in the mid 90s up to the early 2000s under her influence really um discovering uh eastern thought and uh because her 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 mother is anglo-indian and we took trips to india uh, a country I said I never wanted to go to of course as soon as I got there I fell in love with it um and I I've developed uh, I was I was I'm going to mention this guy because I'm sure you're going to go there at some point um Ian, Ian Harvey the guitarist from Delamitri and I are friends and um we've made music together but also we're we're in the same book club it's an all guys book club which is quite unusual in the UK and during the lockdown uh, the book that we were given to read because the guy that runs it is is you know pleasantly directive but it's good uh it's quite nice not having to make a choice is the plague by albert camo and it took me back to camo for the first time in many years and i i messaged ian and i said i've i said i've decided that um i'm a, am an a, a buddhist absurdist or if you like an absurd buddhist and the <laughs> reason i said that was because I do feel at one level, uh, the world is cruelly random, you know, and I don't believe in a divinely ordered universe or a God in the conventional sense. Um, I also don't believe that everything is for the best. I think everything just is. Um, and I also have a sense that the Buddhist, uh, idea of cause and effect is got something going for it and that isn't to say that everything is preordained and a leads to b leads to c it is to say that there is a vast infinite network of connections between events causes people whatever you like you know whatever you like to think of which we cannot possibly understand or see when we are effectively conditioned human beings in the sense that by you know i mean conditioned. i mean you know we are bounded by our physicality our experience our neurology um our genetics but things that seem random may well not be random it's just we can't see the pattern and i I guess and i may be getting i may be doing Buddhist a disservice here if you're a buddha and you're enlightened then those patterns reveal themselves and effect, you could i suppose argue that that's the same as having a god's eye view but so yes i can see patterns i don't know how much we retroget we retroject um to make sense of what looked like a puzzle but yeah i i can sometimes think wow that's isn't that weird yeah, <laughs> yeah. um And I feel very lucky because I feel like I've had several different lifetimes and in each one I've met the most interesting people you know from Glyn Johns to Desmond Tutu to Paul McCartney to you know to miners to people who work in chemical plants it's just like a sort of cornucopia of experience Um, and I've had the opportunity to record it capture it absorb it turn it into something just be amazed by it, you know. I haven't had a boring life by now. <laughs> no, not at all. Um,
0: you Tell me how long you've known Ian, and how you met him.
2: Yeah, Ian and I met when Karen and I and moved to Oxford, which I always say is 2016, but apparently that's not true, it was 2013. Um, and we met at a neighbor's drinks party. We We bought the house that I'm sitting in now as a wreck, and our poor neighbors had to put up with six months of builders uh, while we were doing it up and we were living around the corner and alex very kindly invited us around for christmas drinks which we were really not expecting and ian and his wife maddie and their son louis were there and ian was talking to karen actually about live music in oxford and saying you need to go to this club and this club and you know and she came up to me she said i'm sure i know this guy he must be a muso because he's he like knows everything about every club and all the PAs and blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, he looks familiar to me. And then after a while, after a few glasses of wine, I went out to him and I said, you're Ian Harvey and I claim my five pounds. And, uh, <laughs> and that was that. And, and we we got talking and then we discovered we knew people in common. Um, the Bible had been on tour with Delamitri, you know, Neil had played with Ian, da, 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 da. Yeah. you know, the Lady Reader connection, there was a Glasgow connection, there was a Boo connection, and um, and then three years later, it took us that long, uh, we wrote some songs. Yeah, now, had
1: you
0: been a Delmetri fan?
2: If I'm honest, only the singles. They weren't really a band that lodged in my consciousness, apart from, you know, um, Kiss This Thing Goodbye, which I just think is sublime. Yeah. Um, and, of course, nothing ever happens which which felt brilliantly political at a time when you know dressed up as a pop song, but they weren't a band that I bought the albums by but then but weirdly, in two thousand and something maybe two thousand and one going into two, they released what it was effectively their last album, yeah, um, do me good, and Karen brought it home because she was looking for tracks to play behind a drama series that she was directing. And she picked... Um, oh, uh, and if you see me... Yeah, yeah. Uh, just Getting Lucky. Yeah. And I fell in love with that song and then fell in love with the album. So I sort of came to them the other way around, actually. So you yeah.
0: reverse engineered in terms of... Yeah. Like, yeah you went backwards. Yeah.
2: Um, but I always like Tian's guitar playing because it reminded me of 70s guitar playing paul kossoff and you know this very i mean richards does it but ian does it differently and and i know he's a big fan of kossoff but i didn't know that at the time and there's something very pure rock and roll about the way he plays yeah feet, which is just almost you can't replicate it i've tried no. He I mean, has, you
0: know, he has muscle and finesse at the same time, and that's and an original mind,
2: and an original mind. He never comes at something straight, you know.
0: Now, when you guys were you, so you guys were friends, you became friends, and then you thought, well, let's let's just start collaborating musically. Was that something that you brought up, or it just organically happened? Like, how did Aliens come to be? I'm
2: trying to think back. It was it was i think it was the winter it was the it was that weird dog days time between christmas and new year um between the holidays of you know and going up so it was 2015 into 2016 i think and um we went to the pub and it was shut so we went to another pub and then we were the only people in it And we sat in the window of this pub drinking whiskey. Now, I have to tell anyone that doesn't know Ian Harvey, drinking whiskey with Ian Harvey is a big mistake. Because (laughs) he just doesn't get drunk on whiskey. (laughs) Apparently not, anyway. Anyway, um, he was talking about what he was going to do. He'd done the degree at Brooks. I don't think it was clear that... The Dells were going to do anything else after the 2014 tour. Would they do a record? He seemed at a bit of a kind of loss, if I'm honest. I mean, he may not agree with this. and I don't want to do him a disservice. And I said, well, I was thinking about trying to write some songs again. Um, And would would you be up for that? And he sort of said, yeah, why not? But then nothing happened. We sort of skirted around it for like three months. And then eventually and i don't know what the catalyst was i went over there one saturday afternoon with my guitar and literally within 4 hours he he did something that i I've, I've never done with anybody before because his writing process is very different he just clicked on a, a zoom recorder and left it running the whole time so everything we played was recorded wow and that very freeing because i was just coming out with stuff and he go oh i really like that play that and I play that and then he went to make a cup of tea and when he came back I was in the corridor playing two more chords and those chords became a song called uh, Pursuit of Love. Mm. And then another riff became Babies Like an Alien and something else became Lockdown all in that one afternoon I think. And what happened was I left him with this unwieldy mass of stuff, I didn't know what the fuck, it was only two acoustic guitars, nothing else. And a week later he sent me a sort of twelve-minute version of what became Pursuit of Love, which he turned into this sort of threatening, epic, dark thing. And I just started to write vocals over the top and lyrics. And then I sent. I have this tiny little recorder called a Zoom Korg Zoom. It's pretty dated, and it but it's a great way of multi-tracking an idea very fast because I'm not technical. So I sucked the wav in of pursuit of love, and then I just sang various bits of stuff over the top and sent it back. And and we that was how we worked for a while, even though we only live around the corner. Yeah. And we got together and started, they became sort of recognizably songs. But it wasn't very clear at the start what was going on. And it was only um when I started writing the lyrics that I realized that I was. I was writing about what, what was happening in the world, you know, at that time, which was Trump's election and all those other things, Brexit and so on and so forth. And Ian wasn't really involved in the lyrical process, but he was definitely involved in the uh, editing process. Um, and I'm trying to think how it went forwards. It was quite slow, but it was, I had a full-time job at the time. You're right. Um, you know but it was hugely creative and there was no plan and it was only when we had four songs and I and I said you know what I, I really like to record these and then there was another because he was used to recording in studios and he had a home studio but he'd say well I don't think my place is big enough and we can't get the drums in and where would you do the vocals I said look I can do fucking vocals in a cupboard you know I'm not so we ended up turning the basement of his house which is lined with books into the into the vocal booth and running all the wires down the stairs (laughs) and because you know i we were doing we were both putting our time in for nothing he ended up programming all the drums so all the drums on half the album are programmed by ian and half of them are played live by a guy called martin barker you i defy anyone to tell which tracks are which did did you um, all
0: these years? Were you away from music? Were you still? Were you singing at home? Were you writing songs? Were you, or had you had you put it down? No, I
2: made I, I made a, I made a solo record uh, with my friend Neil and his brother Callum, who's also a very dear friend, as producers um, in two thousand, which came, which was recorded in two thousand and four or five. And then we did a series of mini festivals and London gigs in various combinations for two years off the back of that. It was an album called 16 Floors and it was a very personal record. It was the first time I'd written any songs at all for, well, since 1987. It was just under your own name. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, the, the strikingly original Tim May Band. Um <laughs> <laughs> And the catalyst for that was really that I wrote these songs and, and Neil and Callum together, blessed them, said, oh man, you know, these are good songs, you should record them. And then me being the persuasive guy I am and them having home studios, the next thing they knew they were recording my songs and it turned into a proper record. Um, and the catalyst for that was a song I wrote about my daughter called Beautiful Girl. And, uh, and then I just, they came flooding out. I was looking after her at the time at home She was about five and my wife had gone back to work as a TV director and I was writing. So I had this weird couple of years where I was like a house husband. And when she finally went to sleep, I would play the guitar and drink red wine and write songs and that turned into an album. But then, but then nothing really, um, it all kind of after 2007 slowed right down. And then it was meeting Ian that opened up a whole new way of looking at music and working. And aliens has just been a sheer delight, I have to say, and you guys did do live gigs as aliens oh yeah, 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 really done so we did a we did our first gig in twenty seventeen in London in a little sleazy little club and it and there's one of two of those and one of those tracks is on youtube it's a cover of Neil Young down by the river. If anyone hasn 't seen that and they want to see Ian Harvey play the arse off the slide, off the slide guitar, lap steel, you gotta watch it. He yeah, it.
0: I have to see it, I have not seen that.
2: Oh man, it's, okay. it's still up there. It's insane, it's just recorded, you know, but it's, it's insane, it's really cool. It's proper rock and roll, it's really great. Um, but Aliens Live, it's sort of got its groove on now, but because we want, I wanted visuals, I wanted video and I wanted slides, and I only wanted to do it if it was going to be good. So I self-funded it all, and and my the people playing with me are professional musicians, or in one case, retired Helen Turner. Technically, from Paul Weller is officially retired, but um, so you know, the professionals need paying because it's their job. Yeah, and we need to rehearse and we need to make films and but I don't mind, it's an expensive hobby, but I feel like if we're going to do it, we're going to do it properly. And what's happened is Ian did the first couple with us. We can only afford, I can only afford to do two or three a year. Um, And it's a bit of a number to do them, but it's always super rewarding for, for us. And I think for the audience and, you know, we will just keep going. It you know one way or another we'll I'll keep this thing going and we're going to record a second album as soon as lockdown ends we were due to go in the week the lockdown started ironically we <laughs> got all the songs um, and not not with Ian this time Ian's you know understandably stepped right back he he produced and mixed the pterodome album but the Dells are back you know in full harness and yeah so. It's, it's a new version. If Ian can, and we're playing somewhere he can get to, he will come and do the encores with us, which oh, cool. is always tremendous. <clears throat> um, it's fun.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, now that leads into, into the idea of where for you did it occur to you that maybe a documentary about the Dells would be the way to go? Where did that idea come from? Um, and how did you decide to move forward with it?
2: Um, Ian, Ian hinted at the fact that they were writing more songs, but you know, he's a very, um, self-effacing guy and he doesn't yield information unless he thinks you need to know it. Um, and I knew after the 2018 tour that he wanted to do more, but I now know that Justin wasn't keen to do an album. He was worried about it, that they couldn't write the songs. Um, and then he told me they were doing it. And I think the initial impetus was that I just thought, well, 20 years is a long time. It's a really long time. Yeah. And that have only done two sort of greatest hit shows, but have no interest in being a a tribute to themselves. And by chance, Karen and I had met a potential producer funder who was interested in music docs so that got me thinking so i went to ian and said look what do you reckon and he said nah no one really wants to you know see a film about us and i said well like the fact they they didn't want to read a book about you but turned out they did um and he said justin will never go for it because he won't want it he won't want it to be about us because we're boring and i i sort of took that at face value and i said okay I said, well, tell me about the songs. So he told me about the songs and told me about this song, Don't Look Back, which I'd seen at the gig. And so I said, I said, well, what if we told the story of you and Justin and three fans who've grown with the band and are also at a stage in their lives where they're looking back and not being able to go back, but also are moving forward. So it was that sort of theme really. And I wrote the creative treatment for that. Quite quickly, and and I'd never met Justin properly or spoken to him in any depth. And he read it and said, "Great." The next thing I knew, we were on the phone, um, and off and, and off it went. And uh, we started shooting um, and showing them stuff, and they liked it. And so we just kept going. Now we're in a weird place because the original plan of coming out to film with you, yeah. Go- Barcelona um, doesn't look like it's gonna work because we won't be able to get it done in time for it to make sense with the album. I mean, it's, slight, it's slightly up in the air. We think and believe that we have a film anyway with what we've already shot. If we can shoot a couple more sequences in the UK, we can make this work and it will still be worth watching. But the original concept might have to, might have to be adapted now to the realities you know i don't know um but we've got half an hour cut the band have seen it they love it the managers have seen it they love it um i'm waiting to talk to them about about how we move forward but it's self-financed you know yeah um and it's uh it's uh another of my impulsive you know shots in the dark well but it, I mean, feels, it feels right that's all i can tell you
0: yeah and and to me it's interesting hearing you talk about documentaries, I'm thinking, I'm connecting it to, you know, the way a subject is presented reminds mm. me a little bit of of Latin in the sense that you're breaking something down to sort of understand it. And I think a documentary, and I want to know what the appeal is for you. Uh, I mean, I'm not straining to make a, a distinction or a connection between Latin and storytelling, but mm. I think there is one. And I think mm. that you what you have found appealing about documentaries have you ever thought about what exactly it is that you are so attracted to in terms of the storytelling of the subjects that you have shot
2: yeah and that applies to all the filmmaking i've done which is you know includes the the often maligned um branded content stuff because in every case there's always a human connection to be made in the process, which is right. always hugely insightful. Whether you're interviewing a, you know, a rock musician or the CEO of a multinational or somebody who works in a platinum mine, that's all you know. I don't, I don't discriminate uh, about that. Um, I think for me, there is coming back to that thing about there's, there's joy in the process, but what is that process and, what it, and where does that joy come from? I think it's the idea of getting under the skin of something, sometimes quite quickly, having to do it quickly, to make sense, you know, to understand something that you didn't understand, like the extremes being, um, you, you know, the way, that, the, 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 the way that somebody might grow crops in, you know, in Nigeria. Which I filmed, for example, to the way that Dan Austin, the producer of the New Dell's album, might get certain sounds in the studio i just I'm just curious, you know um and then I think you know human beings are meaning making creatures. I'm no different you know i I like weaving narrative that has resolution i'm a i'm I'm an unashamedly old fashioned storyteller, you know I want a beginning, a middle, and an end i want. I want the hero to go on a journey. Um, I want shape. Um, I don't think I don't mind things being open ended or leaving me with questions, but you know, I, I want that universal shape of life to be reflected in the story. And to my mind, the greatest writing, filmmaking, music making has that. Justin has it in spades. Yeah. Every every song is a mini movie. Um, And it leaves you feeling like you've gone on a journey with someone. So for me, to make a film where the viewer feels like they've gone on a journey emotionally, intellectually, you know, the old Reithian thing about the BBC was to educate and entertain, you know. And it's two wings of that bird, you know. Um, You can't be overly didactic, uh, but you can have a point of view and express it. You need to wrap it up in something that's going to engage your audience. You need to do them the uh, the service of saying you're going to spend an hour in my company watching my film. It's got to be more fun than you know, not watching it, doing the washing right. or in the car or walking the dog. So, you know, and I think Delimitri are very conscious of that, and they do it brilliantly. They wrap up very dense, quite complex. Subtle narratives in a rock pop format that's a really hard trick to pull off
0: yeah he is a great storyteller and yeah. right and the song the songs really are um they 're very cinematic they 're very novelistic in in yeah. all the right ways um yeah. and it's also it's a tremendous challenge to be you know to be a public person who yeah. people look i mean you and I were talking about this a few months ago. That yeah when people look at you they always when you've been in a band as long as Delmetri have been around um, people it's the same thing when you go to a high school reunion. people don't really give a shit about what you're doing they want to know what you look like first and foremost because they want to sort of bump up their own mortality with with you and I think that with bands sometimes when when bands come back after having not been around, I think that people mm-hmm. tend to um sort of use them as a mirror, uh, into themselves. Like, how am I, how Absolutely. They project
2: onto them. Absolutely. Every time. You know, I projected onto Bowie all sorts of things when I was young. In fact, I probably continued to do it, you know, right up to the time that he died. Um, but, but I think we sort of need those figures. That's okay. You know, it's a function. It must be tough to be on the receiving end of it. That's what I'm saying. I mean, I always thought about, I never
0: thought about till you and I spoke about how hard it must be for the artist, mm. you know, um, because it, that kind of scrutiny, that level of scrutiny, um, mm. like I remember I saw Duran Duran in 2011 here in San Francisco, and they were great. I mean, they were really great. Yeah, and yeah. my friend asked me how they were, and I said, boy, Simon Le Bon still looks great. And I thought, that's that was my first response, <laughs> you know, it's like... What, what do I care what Simon Le Bon still looks like? But I think for me, knowing that he is somebody who's a little bit older than me and still looks fantastic and sounds great, I thought, well, then, the, then there's a chance that, you know, that yeah. a- we'll be okay. And I think sometimes yeah. we use these bands as this kind of mirror um, or a mile marker for our own mortality. Uh, that's a lot yeah. of pressure
2: for the for the artist, you know? Yeah. And, and And in the film, we're sort of, you know, that was part of the original intention, really, to to explore that in a bit more depth, which is why, you know, your being in the film would still be great, because you can talk about that so eloquently. And, and Chris Gallego, the photographer in Spain, has a really good take on it. But um, I think Justin's conscious of it and he's writing and singing better than ever. Yeah. And, um, you know, they are trying to do something that is recognizably within the world that they created and the sound that they created, but which is new. Um, and they are writing from a very different place, of course, they're, you know, 50, what, five and 58, respectively, and yeah. um, but it's gonna be a hell of an album. I mean, it's been, to be up close and personal, seeing musicians like that at work, and film it is mind-bogglingly brilliant to um, me. Yeah,
0: they're a very special band too, in the sense they seem to have avoided um, all of the things that can happen to a band um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> that sort of that that sort of sticks around or reforms. Or there are yeah. several bands I think that have pulled it off. I think Ride uh, pulled it off. Yes. You know, yes. I, mean, I think there's there's zero dip in quality. arguably the the songs are are as strong. they sound great. Um, everything is is in place. my you know, my first book was on the Stone Roses that their two mm-hmm. comeback singles a couple of years ago were absolutely disastrous. Um, mm-hmm. I remember thinking like, oh, don't make an album. <laughs> i don't mm-hmm. I don't think it's wise to make an album. Um, mm-hmm. you know. And I hate to malign bands at in any way, especially ones that i love um mm. but Dmitri seemed that they that they really avoided mm. um those kinds of cliched things that can happen to bands. I don't know how they've done it, but they 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 have,
2: and mm. that makes them really unique um yeah.
0: in in that regard
2: well i hope you know I hope the universe turns in a way that means that when this album is released um it gets the attention that it deserves because the songs I've heard are absolutely fantastic and the and the delivery of them equally so so you know they they they, they certainly deserve it in terms of the quality um but you know these are very strange times right? I know they are
0: I know, I was excited to be in the movie and I thought, this is gonna happen. And it's not, there's gonna be a global pandemic to prevent it, um, but sure enough, uh, you know, uh, I'm disappointed I can't hang out with you here in, in California, but maybe it'll still happen. Um, tell me a little bit about your daughter and tell me about mm-hmm. what it's like to watch her career. Um, Cause it's taking, it's starting to take off. She's emerging um, yeah. into a really cool place. What is that like for you and how do you how do you stay out of it as a dad but stay in it as a fan?
2: <laughs> and how- oh, God. Indira started showing an interest in music really young, I mean she was, we bought her a classical Spanish mini guitar with my old friend Callum actually. we went to the music shop together and she was Experimenting with writing songs very young and then she had the most wonderful guitar teacher in her i get a little confused but i think from about the age of nine through to secondary school um a guy called bernie who was an old hippie um and now has his own band again actually called Athemia, folk duo but but the most loving and free and talented musician and he said when he started teaching her he said to me and to Karen I'm not going to teach her to read music play notes learn songs you know he said I'm gonna let her do what she wants to do and follow her and it was the best thing that could have ever happened and they were writing a song a week it was unbelievable I wish we'd recorded them so she loved the process and then when YouTube happened she would spend hours uh searching out music on youtube artists like james blake she played as james blake when she was 14 way out, i mean no one had ever heard of him she was finding all these extraordinary things because we lived in the middle of nowhere so she didn't have much else to do um and then she was around you know professional musicians in our house you know neil callum my band was playing through 2005 we we had we had a couple of big parties Um, and I put a band together with with musician friends, and she got up and sang at those, and we went to see David Gray, Neil was on tour with him, we used to go backstage and hang out, so all this stuff was kind of seeping in, Um, and to answer your question about now, it took her a while to decide that she wanted to go down this route, and I think some of that was just the normal lack of confidence of a young person and being sure and would she be good enough and and you know her their family to us really but you know Fraser McColl is the guitarist in um, Jungle and now Bombay Bicycle Club Jamie McColl his cousin Neil's son is a founder member of Bombay Bicycle Club you know (laughs) she grew up with these kids so you can you get the picture you know it's like it's, it's like being in a it's like being in a pool of extraordinary talent so if you're younger than them and you're coming through you're looking at these guys going wow you know and Bobo Bicycle Club's still one of her absolute favorite bands you know she never stopped playing them as a teenager so seeing her start to really things start to open up is very exciting and it's never a straightforward path as you as you know Um, but she definitely you know I'm her dad it's weird to say but you know we always thought she had something special when she sang even when she was very young and when she stepped on a stage to sing at the age of about 14, 15, 16 just stop they just do that thing of going oh someone stepped up now before she'd even opened her mouth so you just kind of felt it and you just knew jealous of it you know I don't have that I have to work at my guitar playing and (laughs) you know I'm I'm very limited musician but um, and she has a facility with lyrics uh, which I'm also very envious of Um, but I feel immensely proud obviously we have had to uh, renegotiate our relationship around it because at the beginning when she did her first EP Um, The one that's on Spotify now, that was funded through our company, Strange Films and Music, um, and produced by people we know because she didn't know anyone. And uh, the first gig in London that she did, her sort of debut launch, was a band that Harry Mead, who's Fraser McCall's brother, helped put together and all those things. But then she got into a whole new scene in Brighton, um, the hip-hop scene in Brighton, and discovered all her own pool of people and uh, now she has her own management um she's hooking up with different artists from the dance world the hip hop world doing all these collaborations producers that I you know just not familiar with uh quite rightly um and yet you know neil McColl has engineered and produced two songs that are on her current project and then another producer will take them on so there's a sort of amalgam of old and new but um She's very much her own person and her own artist, and she has a very strong sense of what she wants her music to be, um, and is not easily persuaded otherwise, if at all, actually not at all. Um, and my role now, uh, and I hope it's a helpful one, is I'm there as a backstop to read documents, you know, the management contract, find help her find a lawyer, um, and, you know, listen to stuff if she invites us to listen to it, but we hadn't heard any of the new stuff until very recently, any of the demos. It had all been kicking around for a long time, but, you know, she pretty much does a thing. She, she, she'll come and she'll she come up, because we're all together in lockdown, so she'll come and have a conversation and she's about things that she's doing. But um, it's not a world that I, that I know, you know. It's uh, really interesting and exciting. And, you know. Using the sort of the, the thought of, of, of an
0: artistic echo,
2: Who does she remind you of? She reminds me of some of the old jazz singers, really, Mm. in her approach. In in her tone, she's compared to lots of different people, but I don't really think she sounds like anyone else, actually, her voice. Um, I can hear echoes in her songwriting of (laughs) the things that she was introduced to as a child, like John Martin or Nick Drake. Yeah. you know less obvious influences for somebody who's then but then that's now overlaid with this trip hoppy hip hop thing going on and but there's also I think still in there there's she has a pop sensibility which means that she can turn a hook uh, and I think that was there partly through just growing up with you know listening to bands like Fleetwood Mac which she loved as a child you know those that was on repeat you know as well as all these other things so she has a she has a very good musical grounding when she went to BIM the music college here in the UK which you know has a very good reputation but she only stayed a year she decided it wasn't right for her but she was quite shocked at how many of the students had knew nothing about musical rock music history i mean they didn't know who the rolling stones were they'd never heard of the beatles she just found that really weird um i I do too but she you know she she kind of she's encyclopedic about a lot of stuff and she's incredibly into jazz and listens to it all the time you know quite obscure stuff um so you know you know coltrane miles davis obviously Cannibal Adderley, Bill Evans, you know, Billie Holiday. It's always on, you know, she's always mixing it up. And so her musical education has been a little bit eclectic, but it's for a 22 year old, it's kind of impressively broad. Um, and in some areas quite deep.
0: Yeah. How, you guys sound like you have a close relationship. Uh,
2: yeah, I think, I think, I think we do. And, uh, um, it's it's kind of it's lovely having a home because um because we hear her singing around the house and yeah. we hear her singing upstairs and that's something that we remember from when she was a child and it's you know and it's great um our neighbor is very funny about it because he does a very good impression of me singing um and he he, he tends to do that but he never does one of indira <laughs> one of me is not that flattering i'm gonna (laughs) say
0: well you must be immensely proud and it feels i mean it's kind of nice that the story comes full circle where um she's the age now really where you were when you finished school and you started embarking on your own i mean
2: yeah she she's much more sus than i was and she's um she's i think she's got some good people around her and she's very clear that she wants to be a creative artist, not a pop star. She does not want to be a pop star in the, in, the, in the way that people are pop stars now. You know, you move from Georgia Smith, who she loves, moves from, you know, being a singer really to a brand where her clothing range is as important as her release. I, I'm, I don't think that's in India's universe. Yeah, Obviously, you know, never say no. But...
0: No, but I feel like post-pandemic, I feel like things will be slower which is yeah, good yeah. I think that favored yeah. the artist because even someone like I always talk about Amy Winehouse where um mm. Amy Winehouse didn't want to play Glastonbury I mean mm. I mean and, and she, her music was so clearly not suited for it um mm. and I, I mean I just well, think she,
2: you know she yeah, in the past, She 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 you know you can see it in that wonderful documentary I mean basically it's that she does that classic journey from a version of herself to a cartoon version of herself
0: yeah
2: yeah um, and then it becomes too much.
0: She was a jazz uh, singer. She should have just stayed in, in little clubs. And um, and in, for my money, I mean, I, I think Back to Black is as vital of an album as Blood on the Tracks. I mean, I think it's an it's an absolute um, eternal classic. And I, I hate mm. what they did to her. So I hope I hope that the um, as things get rebuilt, um, that we will find that it it there won't be such a huge rush to put people on the stage at
2: at mm. Glastonbury,
0: who I mean, I don't think I don't think even Adele should play Glastonbury. I think mm. these people are meant um, for smaller smaller places. But mm-hmm. uh, I certainly understand the, the, the pursuit of of money and making something into a product. But I, I don't think it's a good idea. Um, tell
2: yeah. me this: Are you? What happened to the singer of your band? He's a lawyer. He's a lawyer. He's a lawyer. <laughs> um, I haven't spoken to him in in many 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 years I am in touch in regular touch with um, obviously Neil yeah uh, who played guitar Chris Jones was the bass player he's a very dear friend and Stefan Ozajinski the keyboards player lives in Amsterdam and has his own studio um, and still making music with his wonderful partner Ute, who's a, a sort of extraordinary songwriter and and violinist and um in fact we did a zoom together during lockdown it was very very funny and we had a reunion in amsterdam a couple of years ago um which sparked a song on the um on the aliens album actually uh, originally entitled uh, originally and very originally entitled amsterdam which was written with golden hangover on on the third day um and then i couldn't finish it and helen turner finished it for me but um yeah we're still very close and we have c- kind of come full circle in our thinking about that period and you know can laugh at ourselves and have fun with it and uh you know it's it's it, it's a really special thing actually but no i'm not in touch with paul or maybe i should get back in touch with. him.
0: yeah because you seem like you're in touch with everybody you seem like you've maintained friendships you seem like I mean, you're such a nice guy that you um you know, you've maintained all these relationships, and I was kind of like, "Oh, we haven't talked about the singer. What happened to that guy?" Yeah,
2: yeah. It's funny. I mean, I think you know, it was it was no big deal. After a while, I think it's just one of those things that happens. Yeah, Chris, Chris, Chris the bass player, and I connected through our other relationships. We godson to We're both godfathers to Fraser McCall, for example. Stefan and I were connected for a while because he moved into the world of doing film work and um, music for um, documentaries and also for commercials so we had a connection going on there so these various things you know there were there was there was present day work yeah which helps um Neil and i have constantly worked together
0: i mean i've done so many interviews in the last month i've done like almost one a day um i've had some really interesting conversations with people where um the conversation is sort of like do you feel comfortable as a musician even going back into a club? And what does the meet and greet look like? Um, I just talked to uh, Jonah's police woman, I don't know if you know her work, Yeah, she's great. And it's sort of like, you know, or I just talked to um, this woman who she played, she was in a band called Sky Larkin. And um, and she's a touring guitarist for Slater Kinney, um, Katie Harkin. And she's sort of like, you know, if there's no shows, I don't make any money. And Mm -hmm. it's interesting to sort of talk to all these artists about how, because the day-to-day life hasn't really bothered them because I think people live in a creative space for me, same thing. It feels kind of Mm -hmm. like, you know, um, to make ends meet, I teach tennis that hasn't happened. Um, But aside from that, everything feels kind of the same, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, So for artists, I'm noticing that they're saying that, but their worry is more on the side of like, an income is a worry now. Like, I'm not sure how I'm going to make it. Well,
2: Neil, Neil's very, very good on this because he said, you know, he was going to tour with David Gray and then it all got wiped out. Harry Mead, Fraser McColl's brother, um, was going to play drums on that tour, his first big world tour, right? All got wiped out. Bombay Bicycle Club, wiped out.
0: Gone. Just put um, a record out.
2: And uh, Neil's saying, you know, that it's, he's worried about what happens after September because he says, we're cool until then. But he said, you know, me and my wife, Kate, Kate St. John, another fantastic musician, composer, mm. with everyone from Van Morrison to you um, know he said, what the fuck does our world look like in a year's time or 18 months time? That's when it's going to hit us. Um, and for the film world, so, I, you know, I've got a foot in both camps. I mean, my living doesn't come from music. I mean my wife would argue, um, it's probably the single biggest case. <laughs> um, uh, but you know, the impact on the touring thing and all the rest of it is, is absolutely huge. And I, you know, so we'll see, but I think you're right about the creative bubble. I mean, you know, we're probably better equipped psychologically to cope with this as Callum McCall said to me the other day, he said, well, You know, I've been living like this for years. It's like, welcome to my world. (laughs) I don't know where the next check's coming from. I'm stuck at home. I'm trying to create something out of nothing.
0: What's your next project after the Dells documentary? Do you have um, something else you have in mind you want to shoot or nothing right now?
2: Uh, Well, uh, just to say we we are, we have been working on and are working on screenplays. So we have a series, a mini series that um, we're, which is an American thriller which um we're talking to somebody about over the weekend and a screenplay set here in oxford so we'll keep going with those um but i want i just wanted to close on a story that i hope you'll find amusing in the current climate i thought I, I i can use this time to write some more songs they don't have to be alien songs so i'm gonna I'm gonna go back to you know where i was in the early 2000s trying to write some very personal sort of songwritery love songs for karen my wife and indira and whatever my mom and dad and and i sat down and within 45 minutes (laughs) i'd given up with that opened a bottle of wine and i then wrote a song called plague dogs which (laughs) just just demoed and sent to all the guys and aliens and it's just like i think i think my days of writing love songs are gone i think i think something's (laughs) happened to me ever since i formed aliens which is i'm afraid my world view has got bleaker
0: well the bleak stuff aside tim it was a great conversation and i hope we can have one in person soon yes
2: thank you really enjoyed it it's been quite therapeutic for me i'm (laughs) I'm glad i'm glad really a fun conversation all right thank you man take care of yourself take care thanks tom bye-bye
0: Tim May from Aliens, a fascinating, engaging, and very cool guy. I enjoyed that conversation very much. Uh, Aliens, the album Terradome is out. Go get it. Buy it. Uh, share it. Tell people about it. Tweet about it. Trust me. It's a great album, and uh, you'll be happy you have it. The band is going into the studio in late September to record their sophomore album, Plague Dogs. Uh, that should be out in early 2021 should all go as planned. Of course, this is the time in the world where nothing goes as planned, but cross your fingers for plague dogs. There will be video updates of their progress on the Facebook page, Aliens Music at Blackout Lockdown. Also, the band is redesigning the Aliens website, and uh, that is aliensmusic.co.uk. My own website, you ask? Oh, that was nice of you. AlexGreenOnline.com. Go there. Find out what's going on with me. You can follow me on Twitter at Ember's Editor or follow me on Instagram at Ember's Podcast. Or there's all these options. You can email me, editor, at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. So go to the one that you use, subscribe, leave a rating, tell a friend, oh, these lengthy instructions of how to enjoy things. But uh, this is how we do it these days. So do it for us, and we'll be grateful. Let's close the show with a song uh, performed by Aliens in a live setting. This is Slick is back. Enjoy it, and thank you as always for listening to the program. I'm very grateful that you're here week in and week out. Enjoy this, and I'll see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bombshell Radio.